0: I'm Alex Perrottet with the fourth edition of Awkward Conversations, a series looking at who we are and how we talk to each other about identity, race, and the complex and intertwined history of the peoples of Aotearoa. I'm here in front of an audience in the distinctive Gisborne bar and music venue, Smash Palace. Why Gisborne? It's the centre of the Tuia 250 Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Europeans in the shape of James Cook and Māori. 250 years after that face-to-face meeting, I'm here face-to-face with a live audience and two special guests to discuss issues we often shy away from. I want to introduce Carl Johnston and Eloise Wallace. Carl is a Fakata man, also with Norwegian Ancestry um, and uh, trained at at Elam in Auckland in painting, went on to manage teams at Te Papa. He's worked in film graphic design. He's a gallery owner himself, and he's also an expert in cultural diplomacy initiatives that's taken him right around the world, and we're going to hear a bit about that. Eloise Wallace is a historian. Uh, She was born in Auckland but grew up in Waikato and and moved here to Gisborne four or five years ago. She's now the director of Taraifati Museum uh, and, uh, and has been also involved in some of the awkward conversations uh, that were that were happening around the renaming of Poverty Bay to and Nui Akiwa, and so um, the, the you know the, the the awkward conversations continue. So uh, we're going to have one now, and I'd like you to welcome uh, to the stage Carl Johnston and Eloise Wallace. We might start with you, Eloise, uh, coming from rural Waikato, and just getting your perspective of when you moved here, not so long ago to Gisborne, um, how did you feel as a Pakeha coming from from rural Waikato uh, over here?
1: It was, in some ways, like we're walking into a different world in New Zealand, actually, I didn't know, and I actually experienced a little bit of, of what I think of as culture shock, actually, coming from a place where I'd being able to live in this kind of Pākehā world and coming to a place where um, the about 50% Māori and Pākehā population. And I remember a couple of days um, after I arrived with my family, my little girl, we were down at our local park, we moved to Kaiti when we were first here and uh, there was a mum and her kids at the playground and they were speaking Māori. And it was the first time I think I'd ever heard as a Pākehā Māori just being spoken in this natural, normal, everyday way. And I was just riveted, I sat there in my chair and I listened and it was beautiful and amazing and I thought, wow, this is really special where I've come to, but also how am I going to, I suppose, succeed and kind of live here as a Pākehā and what is this kind of new place I've come to, what's going to change? So I thought, wow, this is amazing and I've got a lot of learning to do if I'm going to live here.
0: Mm. Carl, you're from here. Um, but you've travelled as well, not just overseas, but it, for your studies you travelled to Auckland. There's an increasing divide, I suppose, in terms of the ethnic and demographic makeup, um, say Auckland compared to the rest of the country. When you were there, did you have similar or or a different kind, perhaps, of culture shock?
2: Well, kia ora te um, Mai te tihi ho, uh, o nga parira o nga manu, nga manu o rua kāpanga, uh, te mihi ki a koutou. Um, yep, certainly You know, Growing up in Gisborne I think I can think of two Samoan families A um, few Asian ones, some pretty prominent uh, They were pretty integrated within the community But moving, I think, certainly to Auckland You started to open your eyes And I'd probably, as a well-travelled person I'd probably classify my move to Auckland As one of the greatest c- cultural um, adjustments That I've had to make um, The diversity, um, the, the numbers and the I guess the transition from Gisborne to something of Auckland, like Auckland, which is such a metropolitan and diverse city, was uh, took a lot of recalibration, a lot of rethinking about um, not only what was in front of me, but what I'd experienced. Uh, you know, in, fec- in effect, what was a polarised upbringing, a polarised society, and we don't like to talk about that. But in fact, you know, I, I often say that you know we're the first place to see the sun, and the shadows that are cast here also. Um, in effect become a metaphor for the polarised nature of the community and upbringings here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, certainly it was a way of starting to open eyes and to see um, the different layers of diversity. You've got
0: Norwegian ancestry, but you've been to a lot of other countries um, and, and dealt with them in terms of, I guess, what you're calling cultural diplomacy. What's all that about, how, and how are you able to advise, uh, to, to, to offer
2: expertise... In those areas, uh, there's a fund called the Cultural Diplomacy International Program Fund, set up to invest in um, strengthening of relationships offshore. Uh, so, as an extension of arts practice and curation and the development of exhibitions, I got into the business of not only taking exhibitions but uh, agendas co to um, to different countries throughout the world. For example, um, around a, a voyage to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, and it was the first time in 700 years that Maori had travelled to Easter Island, and Uh, It was because of an association with a a dear friend, uh, Hekenuka Mai Busby, and he'd always said that uh, his last feat that he ever wanted to achieve was closing uh, the Polynesian Triangle. And so we did the voyage, uh, we got to Rapanui, and through that strengthened a relationship, and the question became then, how do we continue to strengthen that relationship? And actually, arts as a soft form of uh, diplomacy, certainly at the interface anyway, provided an opportunity to have further conversations, not only about... Arts per se, but actually about the cultural context of the various countries. And you have a very, in this sense, a very uh, conservative government in Chile, but a government that nonetheless we're wanting to have a conversation around cultural development, and particularly in the north and the Araucanía region. Um, the way we unlocked that with the exhibition was about context. And the site that I chose or identified to have the exhibition to draw the right conversation was a place called the Gabriel Mistral Institute and uh, affectionately known as the GAM. And the GAM was a centre that celebrated modern Chilean identity, uh, but without Mapuche. Uh, But prior to it being a cultural centre, it was actually through his dictatorship, Pinochet's Torture House. So the very people that had been persecuted in that space hadn't come back to it since his dictatorship. So the exhibition platform and the cultural platform that was inherent within it enabled a conversation to actually uh, be invited back into that space following a process, uh, uh, a cleansing of that space by the mana whenua. Um, So those type of programs are about connection, they're about the building of relationships. And down the end of the value chain I guess there's a conversation about um, uh, political and business based relationships. Um, There's an opportunity for example in Chile they have a very parallel primary industry to us. uh, So they have tourism, they have forestry, they have geothermal uh, dairy, uh, fronteras and and Chile, under the brand Soprali. Um, so, there were all sorts of conversations that come on the back of that cultural and artistic exchange. Eloise, looking at Tarapati Museum, um, tell us a little bit
0: about what you've been up to the last couple of years working up to this, this point in time. Uh,
1: Tarapati Museum certainly is a community museum, uh, a place with open doors and shared and different perspectives. About 75% of our population actually is from the local community and we have a relatively small population here so we have to be really proactive around relationships and encouraging people to use the museum as a space where they can come to learn about themselves, about others, about their neighbours and and a safe space where they can do that. Certainly not a neutral space. We want to push those boundaries. Uh, I do see the museum as a... Uh, one of those places that's a bit of a cultural contact zone uh, where um, Pākehā may come, and I and I know they do, and sometimes they feel a bit confronted by some of the um, perspectives, ideas art uh, they see on display, and I see that as a real positive thing. So um, I suppose with our programme, we are really trying um, to uh, not be complacent, not be neutral, be provocative, um, and, and allow our communities to speak and, and give voice to their ideas and stories. So we, we do have, We have the 250th commemorations coming up this year, but for us, this is also our business-as-usual story. We've been finding different ways to work with communities to tell these stories over a long period of time and with education programmes and all those sorts of things. <laughs> My priority as well is iwi, perspectives, the perspective, perspectives of tangata whenua because too long in museums it's been a Eurocentric male voice of authority and I don't want to balance I want to move it the other way that's where we need to be now so that's the approach we take with our, our programming.
0: And you, of course you, you, you run the museum but you're a Pakeha minority on the board and I'm just thinking about it an earlier um, session where we had uh, Meredith Akohata-Brown talking about how she's a minority on on the, uh, on the local board and, uh, and just the difficulties, the, 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 the blind spots that people on the board have. Um, I guess you're just challenged every day when you're going about your, your job, about how you see the way things should be, the way things even should be run.
1: Uh, that's very true. I think when I arrived in the job and I sat down at my desk on that first day, he's me, this 34-year-old Pākehā woman who's just rocked up. She's an outsider, and suddenly someone has put this weight of responsibility on my shoulders for these uh, generations of relationships nurtured um through the museum uh and there's there's these all these Tonga that are sitting there and, and I don't feel like I have any um gosh how how is it how has it come to be that I have some authority um to care for those taonga, so it felt whoa, really heavy, and I thought, how am I going to do this job? How am I going to find a way? How am I going to nurture relationships, most important thing? How am I going to not muck this up for the generations to come? How do we honour those taonga, all those people, all those memories, all 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 that hurt too that that sits in that museum? How do we flip that around? So I think I've just had to kind of own my discomfort, I think, and go, I I don't, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable in this space. And and, and And that's okay. And that's okay, and has been really healthy and really what living in Turanganuiaki with Tairawhiti has taught me um, to be from a Pākehā, middle-class Pākehā woman, you know, who can be in any space, a school, a hospital, a bank. You know, I never experienced racism or anything like that. I can be totally comfortable. Um, and then coming into marae space, I'm like, oh, I don't quite know what's going on here. I don't know what I should be doing. Listen, try and make good decisions and not muck it up. So um, it's it's uncomfortable but really healthy. I feel really happy that I've come to a place where I can get a deeper feeling for Maori connection to land and story and and find my own way to be part of that story too.
0: This edition of Awkward Conversations features two speakers well qualified to discuss how we define ourselves and think of others in cultural terms, Carl Johnston and Eloise Wallace. We're talking in front of an audience at Smash Palace in Gisborne at an event created through partnership with the Tahar Trust. It's part of the Tuia 250 Kituranga event, which marks the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. I'm Alex Perete in the chair for this RNZ recording. Yeah, it, ap- it appears evidently to me that Tarafati Gisborne has so much to offer the rest of, of New Zealand and it's just very interesting that... Um, I guess we're coming to an end of the um, time of, of the, the, well, the exhibition at Te Papa where Ronga Whakata, uh, have been there, for, I think, since uh, 2016, the, 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 the Iwi in residence. Uh, ha- Carl, having worked at Te Papa, how do you feel that process has been? Has it been a good exhibition? Has it, has it displayed the reality here?
2: Uh, definitely. I mean, because of the process that they n- nominated, and, you know, so they were operating out of a framework that they defined... And so the exhibition actually started at the Five Marae uh, throughout Gisborne and then it travelled to the Tairawhiti Museum and then from there on to Te Papa and each time it evolved. So in a, in a sense the audience changed, in a sense the, the framing of the concepts changed uh, with that audience profile. Um, but I think it landed in a place where ultimately it defined a narrative, a narrative that was linked to traditional and customary events but also packaged them in a way that aspirationally articulated a new pathway forward. So, for example, we really it was a real artist-led program right from the uh, the beginning of the Marae exhibitions all the way through. We started to define what we meant by uh, the framing concept, which was Rukui te Poru, Rukui te al, to dive into the night and re-emerge into the light, and it was again about the polarising nature in a geographical and environmental sense here in Gisborne where we have a strong sense of light, a strong understanding of light and we understand and we follow the light and we understand it a way that it gets caught in the apertures and forms of the landscape and that very sort of happening informs the material culture that we're known for in our carving style in Uwakata and so we took that as an idea and we extended that into a metaphor uh, which was this idea that the artist walks the path between consciousness and unconsciousness the dark and the light. The role of the artist is to bind those things together and we have to actually understand that in the representation of particularly historic knowledge and I kind of even... Um, stall and saying tradition, because tradition's not a Māori concept, continuity is. is built on a continuity, not on something of the past or the future. So once you start to repackage those things or reformat them and start to understand the way they operate, then you can actually start to understand that actually the context in which we derive and we relay stories are very different. So, for example, in Māori knowledge, um, historically, and two point today, we don't discriminate or prejudice between history, uh, mythology and metaphor. So we say we came on the back of a whale. We also acknowledge that um, through Kupe's traditions that the um, southern right whales uh, and the humpbacks congregate at the Kermidex and that was a talk that was an environmental indicator for us to say follow the whales down. It was all a relationship of uh, an ocean ecosystem and the polar caps melting and deep scattering layer, moving north and following down and so on and so forth. So there's a science to it, Maori science and an uh, inherent science. But the introduction of the written word changed those things. The inter- introduction of the written word, particularly through, through the popular tapu or the, or the Bible. And so it started to make our form of history making more didactic. We started to uh, move into a right and wrong form of history, which actually, if you go back even to Greek times and look at Socratic dialectic, it would completely denounce this notion of truth um, so Māori forms of knowledge need to actually be understood and we need to understand that the way we frame and maintain things um, operate without prejudice the funny thing is even the very concept of mythology in some ways is a, uh, a, a diminishing of the value of a story it's often talked about in, you know, in the context of Māori pūraku our traditional narratives that it's a mythology and I quite often respond by saying was Moses splitting the Red Sea in mythology. And, and, you know, people say, well, no, that's the Bible. So there's a really interesting dynamic in there. That's what the exhibition enabled. So to get back to your question, you know, I think that, yes, I think it's set a challenge. It's opened our arts community in the broadest sense um, to a pathway forward built on a unique point of difference. Eloise,
0: uh, 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 this is a personal thing that I've just noticed going to museums over the years... There's, um, we've just got better and better at refining our displays, our our, our exhibitions, and I'm just thinking right now of the um, of the World War One uh, commemoration exhibitions at Te Papa. Um, and um, and just how well-packaged they are, that you come out not exhausted, not overloaded with information, but you've been able to dive in at bit in particular stories that are there on the wall, very interactive. It's unbelievable how attractive they are. Is there an opportunity here to do more, though, of what Carl is saying?
1: I think there's a, a, a newer generation of museum professionals that, um, well, I certainly feel... I'm in museums for change, not for upholding the status quo or museums and what they have represented in the past because it is enormously problematic and it is problematic into the present. You have to bring a whole other consciousness to the way you work. There is this move from the museum as authority to the museum as facilitator and I think that is the most important thing to take authority Um, away from the museum and put it into the hands of the people who were telling the story. So in the case of Rongwakata, there's no one-size-fits-all. That was a a Rongwakata-led process. The museum was the supporter. They had complete autonomy over how they wanted to tell their stories and it was unmediated by the museum. And that's actually a really powerful form of storytelling compared to the museum othering Māori in their displays or putting a particular perspective on taonga Māori or or a story or whatever it might be or categorising, as you say, history, mythology, those sorts of things. So when you personalise, visitors can relate in a less intellectual way. You can have a better experience as a museum visitor because um, you're engaging the heart rather than trying to say this is a piece of information you need to know.
2: Museums interrogate, I guess, the way that you position knowledge. And you can see it a lot in government at the moment, the heavy focus on uh, the corporatisation of cultural concepts. And it's an eth- ethnographic process. So for example, every institution, and mainly public sector you go into, agency, uh, have their what I call their tanga charts. So kaitiakitanga, Tanga mm-hmm. and, and so on yeah. and so forth. <laughs> And what it's doing is a talking from the outside to this cultural concept, and they call them concepts. Mm. I wouldn't call them concepts. I mean, they're more than that. They're values, they're ethos. They're, you know, they're all sorts of things, depending on the application and the way that they're used. Kaiti- kaitiaki is probably kind of a really good example. You know, um, things like uh, guardians. You know, automatically, what you do when you position yourself as a kaitiaki is that you talk about yourself as a Governor of nature, rather than being an extension of nature, mm-hmm. you know. So automatically, you divorce your relationship from the natural world. And we have to remember pre-Christianity that in the natural world were our deities, you know, very much like, um, you know, a lot of Eastern religions. And so when we adopted Christianity and shifted that that relationship, we actually shifted the way we understand our interactions. And it's only through modern process and then a lot of innovation now that we're actually starting to re-interrogate that, the work happening in Te Uruwera, Onganui, Te Kouauteaua, Awa Kuo, this inextricable notion of connection between the river and people over time, legislated and recognised with personhood, personhood just being a mechanism to understand that the river is a living extension of of nature and so are we. So we've unbound ourselves and positioned ourselves on top and Kind of ordered ourselves as the as the curers of state um so we need to reposition ourselves with a with a level of humility to understand that we're extensions of and that we actually have this inextricable and mutual dependency and through doing that you you actually start to understand kaitiakitanga but not through a, not through a catchphrase um i'm not honestly i'm not criticizing it because i think it's part of the journey but we sort of also have to be conscious of it and understand that we need to just get a little bit better and a little less ethnographic in the way that we think about these things. Do
0: numbers of years as a marker work for Māori? Does year 250 mean anything to Māori? We think it's a big, it's 250 years, it's a quarter of a millennia, wow. What does it mean to Māori?
2: Well, I think we've accepted it, but it's not our marker. We didn't use... Time as a marker in that form, we use tipuna. You know, we use ancestors. So if you look at it, and if you if you follow the trajectory of Māori knowledge, it starts pretty much with the, with the notion of pūrāko. So the word I used earlier, which is a, a traditional narrative, pū is a is a is the origin. And if you think about a rāko, rāko is a tree. There's lots of ways of understanding this as a concept. Um, but rāko extends as a as a material form. It's a physical uh, becomes a physical representation of history or of origins through in particular carving which is a, a language not an art form you know, we talk about it as an art form but it actually is a, a principal language for Maori because it's actually able to articulate and maintain a metaphor far better than the written word will ever maintain metaphor but more importantly it maintains a relationship between you and knowledge so it's not about a, a thing or a artwork holding the knowledge it's about the way you contextualise yourself to it so we actually have to again flip around and understand that it's always about how we contextualise ourselves. Going a little bit off topic, but it's a little bit like we use the word papa. And papa, papa is the is layers, horizontal layers. So papa tuanaku, for example, papa ho, horizontal chest, and so on. Um, te papa was built on this notion of a papa ho, a, a receptacle for precious tonga. Um, so we look at this idea of papa, and we talk about when we explain it we talk about genealogy which is tatai faka papa, which is this way but actually papa is about connection not about dislocation you know so we actually have to again come back and understand those concepts and the ways that they work and then bring back models that actually or frameworks that actually help us naturally populate opportunities so i would say for example in the case of tui and i would like to acknowledge the amazing work that's happened within a ill-considered framework in some ways. And I was sitting on the Ministry for Culture and Heritage Advisory Board at the time and said, this framework sucks. You know, um, it's not us. This is not how we commemorate. We commemorate through people. We commemorate through events. We commemorate through all sorts of other ways. And if we'd actually shifted the agenda and come back to mana whenua um, and said, what's the starting point? I'm pretty confident it would have been something like ho tato, po, namu.' these things that actually enable a mana rather than a date. So the date's a pretty cold thing and I don't know about anyone else but often I sit in commemorations kind of waiting for the moment where I actually get it and it's usually actually sitting in a language of symbolism. It's the bugle blowing or it's the the way that somebody marches. That's where you actually ultimately connect. It's not about the date.
1: Mm. The only way I can kind of do it in, in my heart is to think about my family and my journey and my ancestors in New Zealand over time and... I suppose go back in those 50 years blocks and think, what was the world like last 50 and you know 50 years ago, 1969? What was the world like in 1919, 1869, 1819? And put my myself and my ancestors in that space, and and mm. gives you a way to think about change, and it makes you look forward to actually. This isn't just commemorating what happened 250 years ago, but it's about us
2: looking forward. And it doesn't mean there's a right and a wrong either, because I think w- where to um, 250's landed is they've reverse engineered it into those things. Um, but if, if it had just been started with a framework that was actually a little bit more fluid and a little bit more enabling, um, I think we would have ended up somewhere slightly different. But you know, I, if I was just to draw it from a personal level, um, the queer that Maorapani, um, my uh, great-great-great-grandmother, um, her grandfather was a man by the name of Teratu, so he sent the welcoming party from Rongomahata to go and say hello to um, Uncle Hemi. And um, <laughs> if we look at it in, in, in context, um, that granddaughter of Teratu Morupani then married the first settler following Harris, Thomas Halbert, in Gisborne. So there was a collision and a, in a sense, a, a bonding of those moments in time. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were if that union was intentional mm-hmm. that it was actually part of the mending of the past and because we abstract history because we try to teach it through time and time is a, an incredibly complex concept to to understand and, and as a way of um, versioning or remembering history, um, it becomes abstract. If we're to do it through tipuna, if we're to do it through, it through ancestors and we're to do it through events but not events in a linear way, we actually have to understand and all of the things that interrelate. So, for example, uh, as a result of Runga um, resistance, I guess, from the Crown, uh, to Hoki Turanga, which is at Papa, was uh, confiscated. And it still sits there on, on Level 4 as part of the Kōrunga exhibition at the moment. But we don't often think about the Karaua um, Te Kōti Rikirangi in that same conversation. We see them as separate conversations in their silos. But I can guarantee you now that if Te was there, um, they wouldn't have... Taken that house at the time, it was because he was on Fuddy Cody. Uh, it was actually Biggs who led the confiscation of the house. It was also Biggs who uh, had a large part to play into Quati's imprisonment on Fuddy Cody, and it was also to Courtti that uh, balanced up that conversation with Biggs when he first came back onto Poverty Bay. This edition of Awkward Conversations features two speakers well qualified to discuss
0: how we define ourselves and think of others in cultural terms: Carl Johnston and Eloise Wallace. We're talking in front of an audience at Smash Palace in Gisborne at an event created through partnership with the Taha Trust. It's part of the Tuia 250 Kituranga event, which marks the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. I'm Alex Perrottet in the chair for this RNZ recording. Eloise, you're talking about how Pākehā can learn here. I mean, can we learn to detach ourselves from the dates, from that sort of date outlook, that timeline outlook of history?
1: We cannot achieve reconciliation if if only one side remembers the stories, and if one side commences a dialogue in anger and the other side doesn't know what they're talking about. I had a bit of a moment last year where that that struck me to carry on when you mentioned Te Koti Rikirangi. I've been a bit of an outsider here in Tūranga and I didn't know about any kind of whānau kind of connections here, so I looked at it in the abstract. And we at the museum have been working really closely with um, Titira Fakari and Nauri of Tikoti, um, who are who are charged with res- restoring the mana uh, of Tikoti Rikirangi, and um, because he is uh, one of those people, like where there are wildly divergent Maori and Pakeha opinions of that of that person. Uh, and I was digging around in the family tree, and and I found an ancestor of mine who was in Taranaki, but who I discovered had come over and was part of the armed constabulary and was one of those who was um, pursuing te Koti when he came back from Wharikauri. Uh And, oh, I was uncomfortable, you know, didn't really want to tell anyone about this, this kind of chap, you know, oh, sorry, you know, uh, 150 years ago, my ancestor was trying to kill your ancestor... Um, and suddenly what was an abstract story about Te Koti, Wairi um, Ngāheka, Ngātapa, it was personal, and I was like, what's my ancestor doing? What was he thinking about? What was he, what's he doing? Why was he here? Um, and it just, it really, it hit me. I was hearing from you know, the descendants of Te kouti, the... The enormous impact that European framing of Tukulti and his legacy had had on them across generations, and I was thinking, God, I've sat here all these years in complete ignorance of my part in this story, but that's a really important way to heal and reconcile. We can come together and we can go, okay, that's yeah. me and that's you. So,
0: and we fit in there somewhere. And we
1: fit in. We fit into that story. So we have. Um, I always think, uh, you know, oh. My, my ancestors have been here since um, the 1840s, but in some ways, all these and when they arrived, gosh, they actually were Māori speakers. That was the reality, the world they needed to be in. Uh, and all these generations later, I'm still an unsettled Pākehā on the land with, with with roots that do not go go deep. But by finding those connections, you can find a place. And I think that's where that that healing and reconciliation can come from.
0: So, Carl, what do we need to do then? If we're going to take advantage of this groundswell of enthusiasm for commemorating and remembering, what do you think needs to happen as 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 a nation in terms of planning this commemoration, uh, so that it so that it changes us in some way?
2: Mm. I think you've already started to hit on it, which is it's uh, it's not this actual event isn't the destination because we're really great as humans at positioning ourselves as the central characters in history making um, we actually have to understand that there's multiple characters on the, on the board and how do we actually understand those different characters and how they shift through what's the symbolism that takes us in that, on that journey so I think um, and I know that two year, um, 250 are actively considering the, the symbols how do we do that and how do we actually broker uh, a new future um, but one that's actually dynamic and construct you know it's not just looking at those same markers those markers need to change the the DNA signature needs to change the way we have to characterize it. We need to reformat our frameworks and concepts. so the frameworks for me are, are a big issue you know they um, we're operating out of frameworks that are homogenous. Um, you know we need to consider alternatives. Um, we often for example, give in to perspectives you know one of the ones that I often talk about is this idea that there's a tension between commercialism uh, and culture, you know, and you often hear people saying, hey, don't commercialise culture. Our people were always innovators. Our people were always entrepreneurs. Um, when did this thing about being overly sensitive to culture start happening? And so uh, one of the examples I use is the Tokio Tāpiti. is the wakatoa that's in uh, Auckland Museum, uh, Wakanu. Uh, it was, the hull was carved in Whakaki, just south of here by Ngāti matafaiti uh, It was floated up a river system back into Tiniroto and down into Manatūke, uh, where the rawawa, the side strikes and the ihu, uh, the um, the prow and the stern, were carved by Rahuru Irukapo and Peruhoka, the same carvers of Te Uh And then it was traded. It was traded for relationships, it was traded for uh, cloaks material heritage, it was cl- traded for uh, alliances uh, it ended up right up in the north actually on the Ranga Unu oh. Harbour is, um, with a, with a famous Rarawa chief North Pena Uh it was then floated down into Waikato ultimately landed in Auckland but it was traded uh, it wasn't money but it was traded mm. um, and so I often say if you accept that knowledge has layers um, in, in Maori knowledge we talk about te kawai me te so the esoteric and the temporal of levels of knowledge. Kauai is the jaw, the upper jaw, kauai runga is associated with the, with the mind kauai raro, the lower jaw with your feet or with the earth. And so it's this idea that there's an esoteric form of knowledge and a temporal form of knowledge. Um, so if we understand that there's a line and the role of, for example, karakia to either elevate beyond, uh, you know, it's a little bit like a balance sheet above and below the line so the job of a karakia is. So if we understand that, then we can actually start to throw those type of restrictions to the side and say, you know, it's not a conversation anymore about um, the commercialisation of culture. It's now a conversation about the reculturalisation of commerce. And then that becomes an empowering statement. So it's not operating off a deficit position. And, you know, just to bring up to Kote, again, because I think it's important, you know, he was sent to Wharekauri because of his power as a trader. He was a direct threat to commerce at the time. Time now for audience questions in this edition of Awkward Conversations.
1: Uh, kia ora. I, Eloise, um, thank you so much. Uh, you shared some insights into finding more of your story, you know, in that sense, and then feeling really uncomfortable about what it meant for you. And is that something that we could do better, more using the art space, be at the museum? I, I think it's it's really key, I think, and I think for... Uh it seems to me that, th- that that stories, whakapapas, is embedded in Māori culture the way it's not embedded in Pākehā um, culture. So we have to be able to find ways um, to do that, and I think particularly for young people to be able to do that, not to, for it to be the, the kind of genealogical kind of pursuit that some people that have, because we have to find connections. That's the way we can do it. Um, I think for me... Um, it's uncomfortable and healing and it gives me some work to do but it also gives me a real drive I suppose knowing um, the story of my ancestors in New Zealand and they were um, I suppose they had power in that colonial structure to make decisions that ultimately have flowed down to my advantage and privilege that I sort of sit in today and I, I can't rest on my laurels I get to be the director of Tairapiti Museum. It's the storehouse of the the treasures, the stories, the heritage of this place. Um, I have to act on that to dismantle um, and rebalance what my ancestors did. It's not really about reparations, but it's about how me I can find a safe space to work in my heart to move forward. Um, and I think that that's something a lot of Pakeha sit in positions of power in our society whether it's hospitals, schools government agencies if you if you know your path and how you have got to that position of privilege and you can acknowledge that then you can say okay how do I use my little place where I've got a little bit of power and, and make really good decisions to create equity among all peoples in New Zealand so we, we can't just sit back and wait for change to happen, we have to people who have a little bit of authority to to do some things whether it's i don't know whatever it might be we've got it we've got to act and and act fast and not let it kind of be 250 years more before we get to a a point we're happy with um uh, i think museums do really have a role in supporting and i suppose our approach is just to keep making it a safe space for people to come in and feel, I'm going to be a bit confronted maybe, but I, I'm not going to be tuned off. I, I feel like that's OK, I can, I can do that. I can take that step in the door and I'm going to maybe learn something about myself. It's a slow process.
0: Just a short one but to finish off with. Do you feel that you're getting through to people or are there some pockets uh, you know, through the museum's work that you think <coughs> these people aren't coming in and they're not challenging themselves and are you thinking of different ways that you can pitch to those people to draw them in?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think uh, part of my role is um, Pākehā management um, of a particular group of people who are older pakiha men who are very forthright with their opinions about what I should be doing, what the museum should be doing, what New Zealand and the world should be doing. Uh, and they really love to call me up and say, Gio... Don't like what you're doing. Didn't like all that Maori stuff in the gallery. Why what's all that? You know, Maori language. Do, you know, and it's constant. Um, and I don't know if I get through. To, I get through to them, but I do respond to them, and I lay it down. And I don't, um, you know, as a, I'm not a Pakeha ally to those kind of views, so I don't kind of stroke them and allow them to kind of, you know, I try to address it. Um, sometimes I write back and then they don't respond. So I thought, oh, maybe they've understood and accepted everything in my response letter and now they'll go off and be good people. Um, (laughs) um, So I think museums and galleries, I think if they work from a moral, ethical basis, I think they do have the capacity to change minds and change hearts. Um, And that's why I'm in it, because I do think there is a capacity and I do... See, I do see change, and I do see light bulbs switch on, and I do see people crying in the gallery because they've been touched by something they've seen. So those, for me, are the positive signs. Mm. But there's always, there's always the people who, who like to have a, a bit of a, a prod. But that's good, you're being provocative, actually. Yeah. Yeah, if I didn't get working. those letters, I'd be thinking, gosh, I'm doing something wrong, I'm really not pushing the buttons of that person who's a bit racist down the road. Yep. Yeah,
0: yep. it's a conversation and it's a challenge and it, that's a great thing that it keeps happening and maybe those people do go off and maybe not immediately agree with you or even a, at all but maybe something has started to change inside. Gives Let, a bit Let's of hope. hope so. Yeah. yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. One more question.
1: Carl, what was it as a Rungawakata man and as a Pakhet descendant and a Norwegian descendant took you... Along this path, how did you make that decision
0: to do the work that you're doing now?
2: Honestly, I think it was it's driven through an arts practice. So one of the one of the things that again it's about a reframing of practice. You know, um, we've become because of not wanting to get political, but because of capitalism, we've become very focused on the physical. You know, it's all about commodities. Um, but once you understand that arts practices it actually starts with the, with the notion of toyfocar so the, uh, the art of ideas, then actually you start to understand that there 's a whole economy that exists in a rethinking of the spaces in which we operate so identity definitely impacts upon the the, the timber the nature the the tone of of the ideas and it certainly informs it and in the, proven- the, the pro- those different provenances um, but I think it's certainly, i think it 's fundamentally about arts practice because arts has lost its way in modern society you know, arts should be leading and framing discussions for societies um, it does it in different ways, it's doing a little bit through gaming these days, and I mean that seriously, you know, gaming is an extension of the arts practice uh, it certainly does it in some other um, forms, I mean, arts for me is just about everything that we do, you know even journalism is arts, Jeremy you know, and it's all about those extensions whether it's foods or, or whatever it is there's different ways, but arts are just about ultimately uh, um, it's an anthropology, you know. It's about a way of taking and understanding society and manifesting it in one form or another. But the basis of it is Toyfokarol, the art of ideas and understanding that there's an economy that you can develop and actually use as a force to shift and change um, the shapes of society and relationships.
0: I'd like to thank my guests, Carl Johnston and Eloise Wallace. They've been talking with me today here in Gisborne about the need to have awkward conversations. Who are we and how should we get on with each other 250 years after the first contact between Europeans and Maori? In the chair, I'm Alex Perrette for RNZ.